I only need a sergeant really to do three things. If I can have a sergeant that, that can just do three things, uh, I would like those three things to be lead by personal example, inspect, and train, and then just master those three things. If we could have all of our sergeants and corporals just lead, inspect, and train, all of our units would be much stronger. Hello, fellow leaders, and welcome to another episode of the Military Leader Podcast, bringing you conversations with today's most successful leaders. I am Andrew Stedman, back from a few weeks off in Glacier National Park with the family. You have got to check that place out and put it on your bucket list. It is beautiful out there with tons to do. Make your way up to Montana sometime and visit Glacier. I'm glad to be back with you and hope you enjoyed the last three bonus episodes on luck and how it influences the trajectory of your career. I appreciate Steve Leonard and Nate Finney for contributing their guest posts on the site and for adding to the conversation on the fickle nature of luck, timing, networks, and opportunities in the military. You can find those guest posts, this episode, and many, many other posts on leadership, leader development, and productivity, so many other topics there too, all at themilitaryleader.com. Check out the posts, resources, insight, and then connect on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and join the conversation that's happening every day on leadership. I got to tell you, I am humbled by all the people who have left ratings and reviews on iTunes. Over 73 of you have left five-star ratings and about a dozen have left positive reviews, which I truly appreciate. I'm so glad the podcast hits home for you and provides value. If you haven't left a rating on iTunes, I invite you to do so if the show is helping you grow as a leader. This week, I am honored to share my conversation with retired Command Sergeant Major Scott Schroeder. People who have worked with Command Sergeant Major Schroeder know that he is a soldier's soldier. His 34 years in the Army spanned from his Germany days to his impact as the Command Sergeant Major of U.S. Army Forces Command, a four-star command of over 750,000 active duty, guard, and reserve component soldiers. In this chat, Command Sergeant Major Schroeder shares the story from the beginning of his career, where he survived UCMJ and then re-enlisted to become an infantryman. Through varying leadership positions and multiple echelons, Command Sergeant Major Schroeder grew into the iconic NCO leader that the Army is designed to grow. He is a humble leader who always respected the authority of his commander, but wasn't afraid to offer advice, challenge assumptions, and mentor officers at every level. He is passionate about reclaiming the role of the NCO and advises that NCOs should leverage the authority and responsibility inherent in their rank. Though he retired last year, his transition to civilian life hasn't stopped him from influencing the Army. He stays tightly connected to his Army network and is putting to paper his well-developed thoughts on the Army leadership, which will likely find their way to bookshelves before too long. Regardless of whether you are an officer or an NCO, infantryman or cook, Command Sergeant Major Schroeder's insight will make you a better leader. I'm so thankful he took the time to have this chat for the military leader audience, and I'm proud to bring you my conversation with Command Sergeant Major Scott Schroeder. Command Sergeant Major Schroeder, good morning, and how are you? I'm doing great, um, and, and thanks for asking me to uh, participate. It's, uh, it, it's, it's an honor. Thanks, Sergeant Major. Uh, I, I'm excited to chat with you. I know the audience will be, too. And so I want to throw a question out, out to you to start with. Um, I'd like to ask you about a, a crucible moment, a significant moment in your career that shaped you into who you are today. Uh, well, there's, there's, I don't know if there's a 
single moment in my career that that shaped me. I, I think it's m- moments of uh, things that happen uh, across my career that shaped me. But uh, I, I can I can think of a couple uh, right off that are like polar polar opposites and may surprise some people. Um, you know, early early in my career, I was uh, I was an electronics mechanic uh, serving in Germany. And um, right when it was about time for me to be, I was in my re-enlistment window and I was facing the commander for UCMJ. And, and uh, I, I had gotten, uh, I, I lived in, we were in a remote site. So to be able to get any vehicles registered, we had to travel a couple hours. And so um, I was taking the trash out one day and in the dumpster, I saw well, there were some license plates in there. And so um, I had an idea and I said, well, I could save a lot of time if I just put these on the car and, <laughs> right. and I can drive. So, so, so I was facing UCMJ for driving an unregistered, uh, uninsured vehicle with stolen plates on it. Oh no. And, and, and uh, so I was in my, I was in my window and so I ended up going down and to, to go to where the commander was, the detachment commander, they were, they were almost an hour away, so I had to drive ride in the truck down there uh, and go face the commander. and And he did he did two things with me. The first the first meeting was uh, my reenlistment um, counseling. So he was asking me what my plans were and what I was going to do. And I and basically I told him, "Well, I'm, I, I'm not exactly sure, sir. I, I'm I'm considering reenlisting. I really want to, and I'd like to reclassify, but." It kind of depends on how our next how our next <laughs> session goes, right? And um, and so when I went in for the next, you know, the next, then we changed transition to uh, the UCMJ, and um, he he gave me an Article 15, but he gave me a verbal admonishment, and um, and he did not take my rank, um, and so I mean I took that with me, and I thought of, I thought of that commander a, a lot throughout my entire career, uh, even up in when I was thinking about my retirement, retiring as a force comm sergeant major, you know, almost almost 30 years before that, I was in an office facing UCMJ and elimination or at least being forced out of the Army. And um, and a commander saw some potential, you know, the leaders, my leaders saw some potential in me and they they uh, did not put me in a position where where uh, I was forced um, out of the service. And, and I would have understood it had I, had I been forced out. I mean, I would have understood it and I would have had no ill will against the army or, or the commanders. But what that did for me was a couple things. It, it taught me, um, uh, don't give your authority away. That's, that's something that I talk to, uh, young leaders about, I would talk to young leaders about all the time. Don't, don't give your authority away. And only it, the same thing in, in, um, in disciplining troopers as the the discretion you would use on a combat operation only use the munitions that you need to get the desired effect on the target so why mm-hmm. use a hellfire missile when a nine mil round will do mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. yeah proportionality right that's right and then and then corrective training and the importance of corrective training and understanding how to apply corrective training and and i was a big uh, proponent of corrective training at every at every level after that where 
but it, but it does take time. I mean, you have to, to be able to, you don't give your authority for especially non-commissioned officers. Don't give your authority away and to impose corrective training on soldiers means that you have to invest your time in them. And so that's, that's both positive and, and negative. If, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you about that because it, um, it's, it's very relevant for, for me right now. And there are conversations all over the army, right? I mean, every day about what, what threshold of behavior is acceptable for, for continued service. I mean, as you have said in many, many UCMJ hearings um, and, and ARC 15 hearings since that time um, back in Germany, what has been your advice to commanders when, when looking at a soldier who has fallen off the track and what the potential consequences be? What, what threshold is, is unacceptable for, you know, for continued service? Well, there's, cer- there's certainly some that are, I mean, it, I would say when there's a trend uh, and it's a trend over time, uh, we, we also have to look at leaders too, to see what, what interventions have we, have we taken to help that soldier? If the soldier's not just responding uh, to, the, to corrective training or any other punishments, I mean, certainly there are certain things that cannot be tolerated. Uh, but but I think, look, we make it a lot of times we make it uh, we get we take misconduct personal and we can't we can't take it personal uh, and we can't make punishment personal. And it's OK to be. Uh, it's, it's OK to be passionate, but it's not OK to make things personal. And 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 so. I would say it's got to be fair, but it's not always equal. Uh, military justice is it needs to be fair, but it doesn't always need to be equally applied because it should be based on an individual. And uh, and none of the decision, all those decisions are really tough. Uh, I I understand that, especially for commanders, because. Uh, and, and so I would say receive as much input and then make the decision based on uh, regulations, uh, the the soldier performance, past performance and potential for the future and, and what the um, manual of court court martial says. Um, I, I would I would look at those and then it's tough, you know, exercising um, judicial restraint um you know not not going for the max all the time Uh, and then i would also the other thing i would also say there is uh too often when when seeking an administrative separation um you know read what each one of those uh characterizations of service reads because i've i've found that we, we often go for those that are higher when we should be looking at the totality of an individual service as opposed to a point in time, a single point in time. And so, uh, and, and what's, what's the effect that we're trying to, to achieve in the end? Yeah, that effect is, is a conversation we have here, particularly with DUIs. You know, we ask... Um, we look at you look at the soldier. In fact, here in the unit I'm in now, we bring the I mean the, the chain of command comes in uh, to the brigade commander, and we have a chat about it, and we say, what does this really mean for the soldier, and and but for the unit, what are, what effect 
um, will this DUI have on the rest of the formation, be it the squad, the platoon or company? And, and then if that soldier is allowed to continue to serve, what message does that send? Um, it, it, so we, we talk about that a lot, uh, how that will affect the continued uh, climate and r- really the culture of the Army. You know, and, and at one point, um, drugs were, you know, someone could survive multiple drug offenses. I mean, if you probably recall from your time in the Army when that might have been the case, but now it's a, you know, now it's uh, almost always an immediate separation, you know, and at some point, other offenses might, you know, might be completely unacceptable. DUI might be one, might be one of them. Um, but yeah, we have, we have a lot of a talk talk about how it will affect the unit if this person is you know continues to serve. With, without any repercussions, um, I, I'll tell you one of the things we that I did when I was at the battalion level and um, talk about correcting training. I would see companies bringing their entire uh, unit in because one person. Uh, got a DUI. I, I, I didn't really care for that. Um, you know, mass punishment. I was, I wasn't a big, I've never been a big fan of mass mass punishment, um, for a single individual's, uh, indiscretion. So one of the things I did at, at the battalion level was, uh, and, and we didn't run this through the legal officer or anything, but it, it, it was, it was okay because when, when it got adopted by the brigade, the legal team looked at it and it had no problem with it. Um, we, I, we did corrective training and, and anybody that was involved in an alcohol related incident. So this wasn't just DUI. This was any alcohol related incident that was a negative. So if I was, if you and I were out and I had been drinking and somehow we got in a fight, um, I mean, you, you might get caught up in this depending on, you know, what your, uh, circumstance was, what your participation was, or if there was a DUI and I was driving and you didn't get the DUI, but you were with me. Yeah. Maybe let um, it happen. You, yeah. And you, you were there. So you're, you're part of, you, you would come in and you would fall under, we had an alcohol response team and this was a, uh, and, and so you would come in and I would counsel everybody that if it was a if it was an SIR that came up to the battalion and, and we had troopers that were involved in alcohol related incidents, you would get you would come up with your your leadership and you. Uh, you would get counseled by myself and you would get integrated into the alcohol response team. And uh, that was a. You, you were on. I think we did. It, it, it was either. I think it was 30 days. I think we did 30 days. You were, um, you were put on a, on the call out roster. So the next SIR for any alcohol related incident, um, the, the phone call came, went from the CQ or the staff duty officer, um, to, to, to the battalion commander myself. And then we alerted everybody on the alcohol response team and they had, just like a, like a recall, like a recall, two hours, two hours, no notice. And they would have to be there in uniform and they, they would come in in uniform and they would report and they would integrate the new member into the alcohol response team. And they would help in writing the SIR, uh, for the event. And then they would do an A, they would help with the AAR and how it could be prevented. And that meant that for 30 days, they had to stay within two hours they had to be ready to go within two hours 
They also had to be in uniform and they also couldn't show up intoxicated. Um, and so that had to regulate some of their behavior. I would tell you that that had a huge impact on the number of alcohol related incidents we had in the organization. Um, and so it just took a little bit of time and it was a, it was just a program and it, once it got going, it was going. And, um, I believe it worked. The commander believed it worked and, uh, it, it, it seemed to work, um, good enough for the brigade to adopt. It. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fantastic idea. That is great. I, I completely derailed you off the first question. I think you had another experience you wanted to share. Yeah. That, that, there, yeah. I had a, I had a couple. Um, and then, and so that was the time that I, uh, it was about time for me to reenlist. So one of the things I did when I reenlisted, I reenlisted for a new MOS because I mean, the MOS I was in was, uh, being phased out. Uh, so I reenlist, reenlisted for, from being an air defender, uh, like a missile mechanic to infantry. All right. So I went through basic, I went, I went through AIT, which was really basic training again in, in, in AIT. And then I got assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division and, and I showed up uh, to the 82nd just just out of AIT for uh, for infantry. Uh, and I got to the I got that finally got down to the company after going through the replacement and the unit was in the field and I'm checking in with the training room NCO and I'm giving him all my stuff and and the, and and he starts asking me. Uh, you know, what schools have you been to? And, and, and I tell him some of them. And I said, you know, I, I told him I had been to, uh, it was PLDC at the time. And I had been to a master, master fitness, uh, MTT. And, and there were a whole bunch of courses that didn't apply. So it didn't really make any difference. And he asked me what I wanted to, if there was anything, I, any schools I wanted to attend. I said, well, I don't know what's out there. And he told me, well, we got Recondo, we got the machine gun leaders course, which is really good that you could go to. And then there's uh and then there's Ranger School. I said, Oh, well, what do you got to do to go to Ranger School? They said, Well, he said, We go down and you take PT tests, and if you pass the PT test, they integrate you into the uh order merit list. And so I'm I'm a brand new sergeant, E five, because transitioning, I was an E four P, I transitioned, I got promoted to E five and uh or sergeant. And, uh, and so the unit was in the field, so the PT test was coming up. So I went down and took the PT test and, uh, it ended up six weeks after I reclassified from air defense, I, I was in ranger school. That's great. And, and it wasn't that hard. Yeah. So I tell people it wasn't that hard. I, I had no bad habit. I just did what the RIs told me and I was reasonably fit. You know, I, I took that, I took that, um, and and I look at a bunch of our our troopers that that don't uh, challenge themselves. Uh, they they may not go to a school because it might be hard. Um, they they might not compete for EIB or EFMB or other type uh, challenges because of a fear of failure. And we we can't have a fear of failure. Because that's where we learn right right at the right at the cusp of success and failure is where you learn the most um and and we learn more from our failures than than we do from from uh, oftentimes than than our successes. I don't know if you're I was just watching a a, a movie with Bobby Jones and 
And Bobby Jones said, I, I never learned anything from a tournament that I won. I think that's uh that's something that everybody should take on is don't don't be afraid to fail. We we fail when we don't try. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I just signed the uh, I just signed paperwork in fact yesterday for uh, we're we're sending a soldier right back to Master Gunner School. He got he got two thirds of the way through and then just hit a hit a block that he wasn't as a, as practiced on and hadn't studied as much and he didn't pass the test and so he came back and he studied it and uh and getting back after it we're going to send him back <laughs> so um you know he gets that opportunity again he probably he, but he's the best he's the person who knows the best about the course right now and probably has the best chance of getting through yeah and i think i think a lot of cases having those type of courses that that um you know unit programs what are what are our unit programs that that help with success in those critical um, schools. For, for example, you know, I mean, Jump Master could be one, Master Gunner could be one. I mean, uh, th- those things, what, what are we doing inside our organizations to help individuals prepare? I always thought that uh, EIB, EFMB, Master Gunner, Ranger, um, I, I didn't think we needed to teach people how to patrol if we were patrolling in the unit well but one of the things i did for ranger and we had a lot of success especially at the company when i was a first sergeant at the company level and at the battalion level was uh 50 of the people that the soldiers that go to ranger school they they don't get into ranger school i mean it's really a low failure rate once you get through all the prereqs if you can if you can uh do pt if you can foot march if you could land ass, I mean, those are the, those are the big, that, that's what sends people back. It was so frustrating for me at all levels to spend the money to send somebody to school to fail a PT test. So I'd, I want to transition for a second here and talk about the role of the NCO today. Um, you've got a great perspective on it. And um, some folks say that it's changed. Some folks you know, mention how the officers are maybe taking on a little too much of the responsibility and the NCOs aren't quite what they used to. Uh, but I want to get your thoughts on the, the role of the NCO and, and how and if it does need to change. I don't think the role of the NCO by definition has changed. Um, but, and um, just read, I don't think enough people read Army Regulation 600-20. If, if, you're, if you're a leader at, the, at, the, at any level, uh, but especially at the company level and above, if you don't have a copy of Army Regulation 600-20 uh, on the corner of your desk someplace, or it, you know, if you're digital in in the corner of your uh, computer, um, we need to be able to read it. Now, in Chapter Two, it it describes what the role of the non-commissioned officer is, and um, and. And so I, I haven't seen that change. I do believe with the uh, addition of new technology and increased capabilities at all levels, um, it, it, has, it has expanded some. And uh, I'll tell you, a, a company CP today has much more capability than a battalion talk did when I was a battalion CSM. Isn't that something? Uh, we we had less capability at the battalion level um, in 2003 than than company commanders do now, and they don't have any more people to uh, to to try to use that capability. 
And then there are some things with uh, counterinsurgency operations and the lack of State Department reps in, in theater that's created gaps at different levels where, where we ha- ended up having you know, assistant division commanders and exos at all levels <clears throat> kind of filling fill in the gap, uh, working counterinsurgency uh, type things like, uh, you know, so that that created a gap where NCOs had to, in, in some cases, go in and fill. And then in a lot of cases, we have officers uh, that are overseeing programs that didn't exist uh, in the past. And it's just, it's, it's created other gaps. But that that's why, that's why I think that model uh, that you were talking about is is so important because we don't we we don't um, focus NCOs on always what they need to be focused on and there, there's nothing that tells them hey if you don't do anything else this is these are the things I need you to do yeah why don't you um, why don't you explain that a little bit because you uh, you sent it to me uh, this week and I think it's I mean, it's it's brilliant because it's it's distilling your thoughts about the role of the NCO and leadership over the course of your career um, into a, into a, an incredibly simple model that uh, uh, we'll share share with the audience at some point. But why don't you pick out a couple of those and um, and, and go into detail about how you how you see that at each, each echelon? Right. So so in in, in six hundred twenty, it, it it clearly states that noncommissioned officer responsible you know for planning, conducting day to day unit operations within the you know, policies and directives, and, and 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 we train, you know, you know, soldiers, crews, and teams, uh, and then what other responsibilities that a, that the commander defines to them. And so what what I did is, and and what I've said for a long time is, I only need a sergeant really to do three things. If I could just get when they come out of uh, uh, the basic leader course, if I could have a sergeant that that can just do three things. I would like those three things to be lead by personal example, inspect, and train, and then just master those three things. If we could have all of our sergeants and corporals just lead, inspect, and train, um, all of our units would be much stronger. And then you master that, and then, and then the next step is is staff sergeant. And and I'm specifically talking about you know staff sergeants who are squad leaders or section sergeants. Um, who are the only, by definition, are the only uh, enlisted leader in a soldier's chain of command. So by virtue of that, they have to be able to plan. And they plan using the troop leading procedures. They need to be able to track uh, and execute. And so came up with three words for each level and, you know, three things for them to focus on and master at each level. And then we we put that against... um, how we measure units, and we measure units by the USR. And USR is a function of really uh, personnel, uh, equipment, and training. And we put those together and, and just here's the things at each level that uh, if you don't do anything else, focus on these things, three things, the, these things here. Uh, and that, that's basically the model. Yeah. So, so E five lead by personal example, inspect and train, right? Right. And then for E sixes again. So for staff sergeants, plan, track, execute. Uh, sergeants first class, they supervise, they integrate, and coordinate. Uh, have first sergeants that 
man manage, mentor and develop and forecast. Uh, sergeants major, so at the operations sergeant major level, they plan, synchronize and resource. And command sergeants major, uh, shape, influence and drive organizations. Gosh, I'm thinking up and down the NCO chain there and, and how uh, um, the command sergeant major and I talk, we talk about a lot of the, we have discussions about a lot of the challenges that are existing at multiple levels in the organization. But I think you're you're onto something there. If we can learn to accept the res- the responsibility, exercise the authority that's given at the level, um, and and do your role, then that would alleviate having to reach down from higher levels to uh, to tweak, you know, or to get involved in the you know body composition program or get involved in a personnel readiness or you know or whatever the whatever the case is. Yeah, and and I'll tell you that. So the so the role has. The, the, I don't believe the role's changed. I, I believe we need to be able to define it better. Uh, instead, I think we get caught up in um, trying to knock down 25 meter targets all the time, and then we don't we don't have the ability at all levels to step back um, and 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 identify what what's important, what are key, what are, what are the most important things we want you to do. And then everybody has to understand that. So that requires some conversation. And uh, I, I will tell you back when I was, when I was growing up, uh, the army used to say the squad leader is the hardest job in the army, but I, I will tell you right now today, or la- at least last year, the hardest and most complex uh, leadership positions in the army are at the company troop and battery level. And I, I'll, I'll tell you where, we, where I believe we're at the greatest risk, though, is, is at the platoon level of leadership. And, uh, and so, so I think th- there's a couple things that have caused the role of the NCO to change a little bit or the, or the dynamic of the NCO to change a little bit. We still have a – but don't get me wrong. We still have great non-commissioned officers uh, that, that are – our Army today is – 10 times better than it was when I joined the army. I'm just telling you. And we have strong non-commissioned officers and, uh, and I mean, they come from the soldiers. I mean, they come from the ranks. And so we have great soldiers. Um, there are some things that have changed that have, that have caused the dynamics uh, to, to change a little bit. Also other changes uh, come from asking NCOs to, to have broader experience faces. And some of that's good. And some of it's not so good. Um, and then there's some, we've merged NCOs, uh, and we've merged MOSs at, at lower levels. So what I mean by merging, I mean, we've taken some of our, uh, technical MOSs, some of our logis- uh, logistics MOSs and merged them at lower levels, uh, where we used to merge them at, at a master CERN level. Now, in some cases, we're merging them at CERN first class and even staff CERN level. Uh, and, and. And we've done that. Um, we've done that. What, what it has done is made HRC's job of managing NCO, the NCO population a little bit easier, but it's robbed NCOs and commanders of NCOs that have a depth of knowledge and experience. And, and so where, where I was, as I was growing up in the Army, uh, after I transitioned to infantry, I was in a light infantry unit my whole life. And, and, uh, I, I felt that I felt pretty comfortable with dismounting 
mounted patrolling. Very, very comfortable with it. And, and I believe that, that our commanders, I believe you as a commander, you rely on your non-commissioned officers for the depth of knowledge and experience in the unit that you're in right now. And um, if different people require different periods of time to develop. And, and so um, I think, I think that we got to stop moving people across all different types of uh, formations. And, and, and I tried to work that and tried to work with, with uh, some of the uh, centers of excellence on, you know, how, how are we managing the movement of NCOs through different, different types of formations to develop them? Um, you know, and, and depth of knowledge and experience is important. We all often talk about out of the box thinking, right? And so we, we had a we had a speaker come in um, a couple of years ago, and she was talking about uh, out of the box thinking. It's not not that we want people to think out of the box. What we want people to do is know the box so well that they can reshape it to meet their needs. And that's nothing no, more than having a depth of knowledge and understanding of of your unit, its its equipment, its mission, and its capabilities, and and being able to adjust, understand the fundamentals, and that's talk, called mastery. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a there's a personal drive that it takes to to reach that level too. I mean, you mentioned you came in and you you were fired up, uh, just promoted E5, and you and you said, okay, what's the what's the next challenge, uh, Ranger School? Okay, let's I'll go. We'll get after it. But that that was a that initiative and that that motivation was coming, you know, from within you that you had taken ownership of your own professional development and your own competence and your and your own path. You know, how do we distill that in, you know, or, or instill that really in the formation in a in a new soldier? When do they get that? When do we expect them to? On their own, go and, and start you know learning medical skills and combo skills and weapon skills on their own. When do when do we expect the person to take charge of his own fitness to the point where you don't have to tell them anymore? You know, there's that transition period somewhere in the first few years. I think we expect it to to happen. I, I don't think they need to do it on their own, because because so I I mean I, and maybe I went to Ranger School because you know and I said hey, I'll go. I'm not. I'm not sure I was so smart. I mean, uh, if I would have known what the odds were of me uh, passing that course, um, but what happened after I came back from Ranger School was I also knew that I did not know everything about my MOS or my craft, and and so I mean I had a fire team and I worked with that fire team and we worked together to learn everything we could about. Um, uh, about every weapon system we had, how to place it into operation, uh, and, and just the basics, the fundamentals of our MOS. And we, we had things like the skill qualification test. So not only a PD test, but SQT. And, and, and I would say um, some people are going to go out and, and do extra work on their own. But uh, I... I think we need to spend more time in teams learning um, and developing. 
Well, there's that drive, you know, that's the, it's the, you know, there's three soldiers sitting around and one of them are, you know, there's, there, there's a threshold. It feels like there's like a, uh, you know, an ownership of the profession where one or all of them say, Hey guys, we get, you know, maybe it is a fired up team leader that inspires them or a, or a squad leader. Um, but, uh, we, you know, we use dry fire as an example, you know, when, when soldiers come start coming to NCOs in the armor and saying, Hey, can I draw my weapon? I want to, I want to go dry fire out, you know, on the side of the on the side of the company area here because we got a little bit of time that's when you know you've got a professional who's taking charge of his own you know uh, of, of his own you know competency his own capability that's right we got to recognize that we have to recognize them I, I i think we oftentimes we recognize and 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 spend time with troopers that or where we were having the early discussion on uh you know, corrective training and, and 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 those that are doing things that sometimes the troopers that are that are uh, doing bad things get more attention than the troopers that are uh, doing great things, and and we need to be able to recognize excellence, and, and we need to promote those. We need to promote those uh, individuals, and and we promote them not just by by uh, by rank, but promote them by awards, promote them by recognition, uh, and and giving them, you know. Let everybody see them and do it in front of people too, so everybody knows. Hey, this is this is positive behavior. We want you. We we want you to do. We would like everybody to be like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They model it and we uplift it for for other folks to see. The, the other thing I would tell you. The other thing I would tell you is we don't do. Um, some units do it better than others. You were telling me earlier uh, about recognizing the um, the the best warrior competition winners uh, there's fine look look for opportunities i would tell leaders at all levels look for opportunities competition is awesome and you don't have to have a formal competition and it doesn't take a lot of resources to have competitions at the uh platoon company battalion level and and i would i would say those promote people it, our troopers want to be challenged. They really do. Uh, that's great. I do want to switch gears with you for a second here and talk about sure. a little bit about your career and your experience. You know, so you were a command sergeant major at division corps and force comm level. Um, and I'm, you know, just for the audience here, I was very fortunate uh, to, to meet you in 2013. I didn't, and when we were in uh, Kabul together under third corps and the, what became the ISAF joint command under general Milley. And uh, so we got to have an office just down the, down the wooden hallway from each other and spend some time together, which I really appreciated. Um, you know, but what about leading and being a command sergeant major at those higher levels? Do people just really not understand until they're able to experience it or get some insight firsthand? I think the biggest things at, at that level are um, everything takes a little bit more time uh, to, to, to affect change. Uh, it, it takes more time and, um, the, the other thing that I wasn't predicting, especially when my easiest, <clears throat> I'll tell you my hardest leadership transitions um, were from battalion to brigade. Um, that that was the first time when I went to brigade, when I became a brigade command sergeant major, uh, that's the first time in my army career that I realized I did not know everything that was going on in my unit and I had to get comfortable with it. 
Yeah, I, I had a pretty good. I thought at the battalion level, I had a pretty good idea of everything. Most of the stuff that was going on uh, in the organization. But when I went to the brigade level, I, I realized that, wow, this is a big, this is a big organization. I did not. I was in a brigade, but I did not know how big a brigade was. Yeah, commanders echo that when they when they move from battalion to brigade, they say, "Oh, you." It's the last. Uh, in fact, Scott Shaw, uh, Colonel Shaw, he'll command a brigade. He said, "Battalion's the last level of leadership where you know a soldier's name in the dark and, and or you know his voice and and that they know yours." And uh, that it's that at brigade, it's a system of systems, and you're just you're you're tweaking models uh, up there with a lot less interaction than you have at battalion level. So I can I I can I've heard that many times. And, and then the next, and and so then going from brigade to division uh, was not that hard. Going from division to the corps, I mean, it was basically I was doing the same thing at the corps as I was doing at at the division, just a little bit greater scale, and then. The next big leadership jump, uh, Forcecom, was just, I had no clue. Um, it was uh, it, it is a it's a big organization and to have an impact and and you, you gotta you have to figure figure out where you can ha- make the impacts and and so it came from uh, really came from what what are the commander's priorities and. Uh, I would I'd take the commander's priorities uh, at almost every level of leadership that that I would, you know, from the battalion up, and I would I would write those down, and I would say, okay, what efforts do I make to feed these command priorities? Uh, and and so I would work that. But I think one of the things I would tell um, senior NCOs at the division and above level. And I told the person that replaced me, Sir Major Smith, I said, the, a, the one thing I'll tell you is what you won't be prepared for is the demand uh, on your time. There'll be a lot of people trying to tug at you for your time. And you have to you have to ration it. You got to figure out what what's important, who's important and who you should be engaging and who you who you shouldn't be engaging or you don't need to engage. Um so I think the demand on your time, I think most people don't understand how much um, our senior leaders uh, are pulled, how many how many different directions they get pulled. And if you allow yourself to get pulled uh, away, um, you, you can lose you can lose focus. So I, I always tried to I always always tried to stay focused on the commander's priorities and how I thought I could best help the organization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did you do as much battlefield circulation at Forcecom as you did in Kabul in 2013? I did. So I did, and it, and it was different though. So I mean, Forcecom, not necessarily battlefield, um, because we, I mean, we, we didn't go out. I, I did not go. You, if you're talking about overseas battlefield oh, circulation, yeah. I, 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 no, I really made around the country to visit bases and whatnot. Yes, it's a, it was a lot of travel. It was it was probably it was probably three, two, three, four days a week, three weeks a month, and then a week in the in the headquarters. Um, and then it was to go visit organizations. It was army staff type things. Uh, one thing at the force com level that I realized was. Nothing. You can't make any huge changes to, to, to 
no huge changes without getting having buy-in from other organizations. Tradoc, the Army staff. Um, so it has to be. It had to be a team, a collaborative effort at the force com level. Um, but I enjoyed. I enjoyed Kabul, and and that deployment was very uh, very rewarding as far as being able to help troopers. And I think at the at the division at the division and core level, being able to get out and uh, see troopers, I would I would take that. And I could go places that the commander could not. And I could also bring, so I, 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 commanders have so much, they have so much going on. They don't get to go any one place and stay there for a long period of time. So, but I could, so I could go inject and then I could come back. And, and sometimes I would come back and brief the commander on what I saw. And other times I, I would come back and just go talk to the staff. Um, because what I would tell, tell senior NCOs, uh, especially at the at, at the level at the division uh, and above, um, well, even even at the battalion at all levels, I, I would say you don't need your commander telling telling them that you're you're the command sergeant major and that the staff should support you. Uh, I think uh, if if you if you have uh, some things and you show value to the staff, I mean, and if you get the staff to take on your uh, the, the things that you see and the things that you want to do, um, I mean, you've, you're, you're doing pretty good. And and I tried to make myself uh, an extension uh, to the staff, and and it wasn't always easy, especially in Kabul with that that headquarters, because it was not only a joint headquarters, but it was a multinational headquarters. And 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 the other the other thing that I realized is I at the division level I realized I couldn't go to every meeting. I don't know if you remember the meetings that we had uh, in Kabul. Uh, you know, you have to be humble a little bit. I mean, I, I would go in and there wouldn't be a chair for me at, when we first got there. Remember that? And I would just go sit in the back corner. And then, and then at the end, I, you know, at the end of the meeting, I would say, "Hey, sir, I got a couple things." And General Milley would always, he he would always say, "Sure, Sergeant Major." And 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 so you, ha as a command sergeant major, you have to show that you have value. And 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 so I would try to provide some insights. And and there were so many meetings there that I would go, I would go to the chief and say, I would just say, "Hey, sir, um, you know, what 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 are the topics for the meetings?" and and uh, he would tell me what they are, and I would, you know, sometimes I would say, okay, I'm going to go to that one. Hey, do you think I have, is there any, is there any value in me attending this meeting? Um, and and so, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, General Miller liked to have the, 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 the meetings a little bit smaller because then you could really get some That's stuff right. done. And, That's right. And I would come into the, I would only come into the parts of the meeting where I thought I, I uh, could offer some type of valuable insight, and I would bring my folding chair in. Yeah, I would stay right. for that part of the meeting and then Bring I'd leave. And, right. That's right. I mean, so it, I, I, uh, you can't, you can't go to all the meetings. And I think what you bring, if you bring, if you, sh if you show value and you show interest, I mean, eventually the staff officers will start coming to you before they start briefing the commander. Uh, cause they want your insights from being out on the battlefield and seeing what's happening. 
Yeah, absolutely. I feel like uh, what I observed about your uh, your leadership there and your time there was that you were, like you said before, ex- your extension of the commander, uh, but then also you were covering blind spots, you know, uh, going to places that, like you said, he couldn't, uh, whether that's an outpost or maybe that's a, a, a section he had no idea about, or, or it's a nation that's only got a, a portion of, I mean, a very small portion of soldiers there. Uh, you know, but you're able to go and talk and get a sense of, of what's really happening. Um, it, take us, I, I do want to ask you about, let's say battlefield circulation. So, you know, you're going out to a, a, a company size outpost, uh, say an RC East somewhere. And, you know, you, you, f- they know you're coming, you fly in and you, you know, get off the helicopter, you meet the leaders, you go and you sit down. What's the goal of the conversation? What are you What are you trying to get uh, out of them to understand? What are you trying to do for them? Um, you know, what was what was your approach when you visited those places? Yeah, the first thing I, I really just um, I, I, w- I wanted to know what they what what their mission was and um, what their mission was, what what uh, what resources they had. Uh, did were the, did they have the resources that they needed to to conduct the mission and the resources is just not uh you know material it's also personnel and uh and what else did they need what where 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 could they use some help and then then i looked at uh you know and was their understanding of the mission the same as uh their their leaders at the battalion brigade and, and higher levels, and if they knew how, what what they were doing fit in, and really I didn't look at as much uh, what they were doing as how they were doing certain things, and and I really honed in on things that uh, I, we have a lot of commanders looking at, at at the offensive operations and the really and 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 a lot of people are looking at offensive operations. The, some of the things that I looked at though were were also areas that others might not. And so I, I looked hard at force protection. I looked hard at insider threat. Uh, we had a lot, of, insider threat was a, a large uh, challenge for us when, when we were there. Uh, and, and, and I looked at those and I looked to find out where uh, training gaps might be uh, for those organizations before they came in. And and then because we were responsible for RSOI, uh, the training, you know, the in theater RSOI training, and and so I, I took I took those things back and tried to help shape the the RSOI training. I also took information back and sent it back to the to the CTCs and spoke with the command sergeant majors at those CTCs uh, that were preparing organizations to come over, and and then units that were supposed to, that were coming over into a rotation, and. Uh, preparing some things for them uh, so they would be better prepared. Uh, that, that, that's kind of where I was, that, that's kind of where I was uh, focused. Yeah. I remember the RSOI bit. I remember having conversations with you about that and that being a focus. Um, that's great. So when, uh, Sergeant Major, when you think back over, over the course of your career, uh, when you think about the NCOs that you looked up to, um, who do you have the most respect for? Who stands out as a person that you said, you know, I, I really want to, I, I can take a lot from this person and I, and, uh, and, and you kind of let that person shape who you become. Oh, there's so many. Um, 
there's so many. I would say, and it's just not NCO. So, uh, but the number one NCO that that uh, my biggest mentor uh, role. I had a couple. Um, Marvin Hill, uh, Sergeant Major Hill, was huge. He was somebody I could always call or shoot a note to, and he would be it, it would be immediate and and uh, and it was always good, solid, sage advice and practical. Uh, it, it was always very practical. And then um, Sergeant Major Cliff West, Ron Riling. I mean, I had also peers Alonzo Smith and John White. Those guys were were awesome to have around and, and commanders too. I mean, I, I learned things from every commander that I worked with. Uh, and, you know, Colonel Kandarian, Jeff Buchanan or General Buchanan, uh, General Hickman, and, and, and they're all so different. And so you would get different things from, you know, General Milley. Uh, you get so many things and, and they're so different. I mean, there's so many things I want to I want to talk to you about and I want to ask you, uh, particularly because you you have the ability, uh, from what I've observed by working with you, to be at a, a level like Force Calm or Core, but not separated from the tactical fight. If that makes any sense, like you, I, I see you as a as a soldier through and through, no matter what level you are serving at, and um, and not you know not not everybody can achieve that. Um, but when you think about a lesson that you would impart on the the soldier on the ground right now, if you could inject one lesson into the soldiers out there, what would that be? Become a master of your craft, and and um, I mean that that that's that's the important. Th- I, I think that's one of the most important things. I mean, just master your at every level master your craft uh too, too many times we, we we get focused on uh i never had the intention of being the force com command sergeant major uh, i never thought i would even be a command sergeant major um even as a young soldier i wasn't interested i wasn't interested in seeing the first sergeant uh and, until one day i was looking at him every day when he shaved shaved to get ready to go to work um uh, and, and and so Master your job. Uh, a lot of times we get caught up on, hey, what's next for me? What am I? What am I doing next? Uh, the, the best way to to to, and I would answer people uh, when they say, hey, well, what's the best way to, for me to get promoted? Said so that's not the question you should be asking yourself. The question you should be asking yourself is what 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 do I need to do to be better at the job I have right now? And if you do that job and you get that good, then the promotion will follow. All right, Sergeant Major. Uh, I'd also like to I'd like to ask you uh, what ways you think officers, like particularly staff officers, could maximize the talent of the NCOs that they have on their team. Sure, and and I don't think it's any different than any other any other type unit. The <clears throat> the staff's a unit, and uh, we we got to build. We got to make those those uh build build the team know your people communicate with them individually and collectively uh understand their personal professional goals uh and provide them with realistic and measurable areas to focus on i think oftentimes uh you know staff officers in, in particular are trying to figure out what they're supposed to do and they they lose sight on what what they need their non-commissioned officers to do and non-commissioned officers don't typically get trained 
on how to be staff NCOs. Uh, and and then leveraging the operations sergeants major and, and CSM, as well as the first sergeant. Uh, engage those senior leaders. Uh, staff officers need to engage those senior NCOs uh, to, to help them. I mean, it's uh, I think that's important. And probably the only time you can get everybody on your staff team together is during PT. And that's uh, a lot of times the staff does not do PT together on on a routine basis. And, and I think that's a that's a huge missed opportunity. And then for um, you know, then one one thing I'd tell uh, the the majors that are uh, attending ILE. Uh, and I know they have this concern, uh, but your CERN major, your, your command CERN major and your CERN major are just as worried about you uh, as, as you are about who you're gonna draw when, when, you come to, when you come to them. So relationships are huge. And then I would tell all staff officers, I mean, use your senior NCOs, especially your, uh, your command CERN major. The command CERN major can do two things for a staff NCO. Uh, that, that, that command sergeant major can provide because he or she sits in the meetings with the commander and so he can provide you that that command sergeant major can provide you insights to what the commander's thinking about what he's consider what he or she is considering and they can also provide access to the commander so i would have staff officers come talk to me and I could provide them insight. But then sometimes if I didn't have the answer, maybe I would just ask the commander and then I would get back to him and say, hey, this is the answer. And then they wouldn't have to go through I mean, a, a planner who's a major, um, had, doesn't typically get direct access uh, on a routine basis to the commander. There's a lot of wickets to go through, but that major can come up and talk to the CSM. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, th that's a good that's a good coa. Um, yeah, I sometimes think that the officers on a staff are become uh, solitary professional problem solvers, and as soon as a something pops up, it's their job to jump right on it and just run and go with it, and they, they don't pick their heads up and look around the room to see all the talented people, NCOs in particular, who can who can help them with the problem. There's like he's the he's the land and ammo guy. He's the He's the DTS guy, and and this is that guy, and that's all they focus on. But you know, we really can, we really can maximize the NCOs that are on the team. Yeah, and I think it just gets comes comes to know your people, and and uh, that that's one of the most important things. I mean, we're 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 in a business. The Army's a business of of uh, people, and it it takes people to solve the problems, and and no one person can do it. And so it's team. It's about teamwork. Absolutely. Um, and so, Sergeant Major, I want to close out with a, a really important question. You mentioned earlier that the role of the uh, that the commander, I'm, excuse, I'm sorry, the the company battery troop level is uh, one of the most important ones and and the hardest uh, job here uh, in the Army. Um, you know, today, w what is the most important role that a first sergeant can play uh, for his or her commander? The most important role the first sergeant can play is. Uh, being an inspirational role model and a trainer. Um, and I think that can almost cover everything. So especially that one, it, you, have, you have to lead by example. It starts as being a sergeant in, in everything you do. And then you have to be a trainer. Um, and, and the first sergeant and NCOs, uh, as, as when I talk about trainer, 
someone that focuses on making others better. I mean, it's about really about making others better, not yourself. And and um, that that's what I look towards is helping others be better than in organizations. Help them be better. I mean, that that kind of covers covers everything. That that role is so important. I am spending a lot of time, uh, mental energy lately, and also uh, discussions in the unit, just trying to scope the landscape of uh, requirements and tasks and responsibilities that uh, the the company commander and first sergeant have uh, to work through, because it all descends on their level. It's the first level of command, and so you know we we've been focusing on trying to get help them um, at least prioritize, you know, and in, in the in the in the CSAs. And the secretary's initiative of, you know, accepting prudent risk in the areas that that we can, um, and focusing on operational readiness. You know, we're trying to do that at the company level to say, you, you know, focus on this. We're going to accept some risk in this area because I know that it's just all piling on them. But that team, that that commander first sergeant team is, uh, I, I I happen to agree with you. It is one of the most difficult, but also one of the most important relationships uh, in our army today. I would go and I would tell you, you know, if you draw those two triangles. And you look at the resources and requirements, uh, you know, with the, you know, the, the battalions and the brigades have, have a huge num- amount of resources and, and fewer requirements. And the company has fewer resources and, and all the requirements. And then I would that ask the staff, you know, how, how, can you, how can you keep the number of requirements down? And, and then I would ask the company command teams. How can you increase your resources? And you increase your resources by leveraging the the individuals in your organization. And um, you know who who are your you know, the first sergeant can't run every program. The first sergeant can't run every program. He can't he or she can't run the Army Body Composition program. He or she can't um, run the schools program. He and she can't run all the all the different diff, you know the profile. The, the the special population PT program, but he or she has people inside that company. If given an additional duty and overseen, it might not be as good as if the first sergeant was personally supervising it, uh, executing that program. But it's a lot better than not doing it. And so, how how do you leverage special duties? I I learned a lot from the special duties I had. I was a reenlistment NCO. Was a, as a staff sergeant in a company, and uh, I was also a special, uh, I was the Army Body Composition Program NCO in, a, in another company, and I, I, I learned how to do staff stuff. That's how you train your soldiers on the line, how to do staff work. Well, Sergeant Major, there are, there's a handful of topics we could continue to talk about and I could pick your brain on. Um, I, I personally appreciate that you taking the time to chat this morning and I'm, and I'm lucky that this isn't the only chat we've had about the role of the NCO and, and leadership and your experience. Um, so I'm very fortunate for that, but thank you for uh, taking the time here to share your, your experience and your insight and, and thank you for investing and into, and then caring for our soldiers, uh, every day of your career and continuing afterward. Uh, you've you've made and I've gotten to watch it. You you made a significant and personal impact uh, across many formations. And when the the folks that I talk to that know you say that uh, you know you are the type of NCO we need more of in this army, and um, and so I, I would just want to thank you for that, and just tell you that uh, um, 
that uh, you made a difference. Well, I, I appreciate it. And uh, it's, it's been an honor. It was an honor to serve for 34 years. I really didn't understand how much of, uh, of a blessing it was uh, early in my career. But as, as I started, you know, getting a little longer in the tooth, I really understood what an honor it was to be able to help lead uh, America's Army. And, and presence matters. And, and being with the troops matters. And, and so what you, what, but what you do when you're there matters even more. Um, so I, I think I appreciate what you're doing. I really envy you where you are in your career and uh, all the troopers out there. And, and, and thanks for what you do every day to keep us safe. Yeah. Thanks so much, Sergeant Major. All right. Enjoy your Friday, which will hopefully include cycling and uh, relaxing a little bit. It will it will include uh, recovery and preparing for tomorrow's cycling activity. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. We caught you on your off day. Good. All right. Um, well, uh, we'll be sure to talk soon. I'd love to have you on on again, and uh, we can explore some of these. I'm sure there are a ton of questions out there. People would want to uh, would want to send in and ask you directly. So maybe we can set that up. But uh, thanks so much for your time, and we'll talk soon. All right. Have a great weekend. That really was just the surface of all the topics that Command Sergeant Major Schroeder could go into. The Army is lucky to have had him as one of their leaders, and I'm thankful that he took a moment away from his wife and from cycling to share his perspective. Only two more episodes left in Season 1 of the Military Leader Podcast. What will happen after Episode 10? Well, I'm not sure. I am thoroughly enjoying the conversation so far, and putting this podcast together has been quite a journey. I've got a few big events coming up at work, though, and I may not have time and be able to invest the many hours it takes to put the show together. So I may be asking for help very soon. If you have podcasting or audio editing experience and might want to get involved in producing the Military Leader Podcast, then keep an ear out for details on the website and in following episodes. All right, for next time, I am going to share the very first interview I conducted for the podcast and the only interview so far that has been in person. Episode 9 will feature a buddy of mine and a leader whose influence network reaches distant circles of our Army. Lieutenant Colonel Matt Hardman joins the podcast to share his insight from 20 years in the infantry, as well as his experience from battalion command and as an observer controller at the National Training Center. He had the honor of serving as Bronco 07, which is the brigade staff trainer and advisor to the rotational unit brigade commander going through NTC. He has seen lessons learned the hard way and consequently has a realistic perspective about what training for combat should look like. Here's a short clip of my upcoming conversation with Lieutenant Colonel Matt Hardman. Yeah, everybody wants to be a starter. We don't need starters, we need finishers. You know, we need people um, that are highly competent at what they do. And there's no rest, there's no magic pill, there's no substitute other than putting in the work and doing the rest. Mm -hmm. You look at you look at the special mission units and they're really, really good. And it's, there's no, they didn't get an injection, you know, having gotten to watch them at brag work and downrange work, they put in the work mm -hmm. and they do the little stuff right. And, um, you know, I certainly influenced by playing sports and, um, you know, my soccer coach at, uh, at Davidson, a guy named Matt Spear. And I talked to him right before I went to command. And his advice to me was like, he's like, hey, and I, I really respected him a lot. And his thing was like, hey, he's like, the thing I learned, I stopped worried about recruiting like the best talent. 
And I started worrying about recruiting people with the right mindset. Because from mindset, mm-hmm. you know, you'll get capacity, you know, uh, capacity and skill, mm-hmm. not the other way around. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I really believe that. And I, you know, Matt was the kind of guy playing for that we could beat a team five nothing. And at the end of the game, hey, what are the three things we're going to improve? Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's the mindset. You know, yeah, you know, you did well. Okay. And what next? Yeah. And, um, you know, I think for our army, I think that that you got to stoke that inner drive to just constantly be better. Yeah. Look for that episode next time on the Military Leader Podcast. I know you'll enjoy it. Remember, the views expressed here do not represent the Department of Defense or the U.S. government in any way. I want to thank you so much for listening. And until next time, lead well.